But for me, what really propelled me, and, and when we talk about mindset, I think it's so important because it was my mindset that helped me continue to achieve things that maybe other people would, would think would be impossible for someone like me. It has to do with, I think, stop thinking about yourself, right? Like, it's not, it's not about you, like what has ever happened to you or the suffering that you have incurred. Maybe it's something bigger than you. And if your cause, if your end goal, if your purpose is something greater than you, then you can get there better than thinking that it's solely your individual feelings that matter. That's our guest, Molly Palmer, Tiger King lawyer, with an inspirational story of rising to be one of the country's most recognized criminal defense attorneys as a woman and leader in her industry. Molly tells her story of rising through humble backgrounds to having her own law group, then being an advocate and service to those in need of much help in her district and state. Really what I wanted to do was serve others who were far worse off than I was. And with that as the motivation, something more external, that gets you there. I think when you wallow and mire yourself in your own experience, you're too self-absorbed. Honestly, when it comes to the world, it's not about you. It's a very big world. <laughs> so that would be my message. I'm Bob Bianchi. At the Bianchi Law Group, LLC, we are a team of former prosecutors who fight the government when they charge our clients with crimes. Our entire legal team is made up of former prosecutors, and my partner, Dave Bruno, served with me in the major crime and fraud units. And I'm David Bruno. In each of the episodes of this podcast, Bob and I will interview guests who have faced adversity in their personal and professional lives and find out what mindset they employed to triumph. Now, we seek the truth through real-life encounters and candid conversations with thought-provoking guests ranging from all walks of life. Here, you will find how today's thought leaders in their industries faced immense challenges and adversities with captivating stories ending in personal triumph and ultimate success. All being brought to you on Nothing But The Truth podcast. Molly Palmer, nationally recognized criminal defense attorney with high profile clients such as the appeal of the Tiger King, presently serves on the board of directors for the Georgia Innocence Project, is an alumni from Emory Law, is an adjunct professor, is frequently featured on legal shows, and networks like Court TV and Fox News. We began our conversation with Molly's origins as an attorney connected to those in society that may be frowned upon of poorly behaved, which Molly experienced from her humble upbringings and even in her first career as a school teacher. Molly shows us her passion to serve her community. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, so Molly, let's let's. I, I want to talk about like a lot of us go into the prosecutor world to get our trial experience. Uh, that was Dave's experience, my experience. Our whole legal team were all former prosecutors. You took that alternate route and you went to the Federal Public Defender's Office. You received great accolades in law school as a great oralist and and all the great work that you've done. Uh, and now in the Innocence Project, I don't know if our audience will really understand what the Innocence Project is. But why did you take that route rather than going the prosecutorial route? Well, I mean, I, no offense, gentlemen, I'm big fans of yours, but I would never be a prosecutor in a million years. Um, for me, law school 
school was a second career. I was teaching special education in public schools for five years. I taught students who had severe emotional and behavioral disabilities. Um, and I think my connection to that work stems from the fact that you got to get in where you fit in. And I've always been connected to those who are seen by society as maybe um, poorly behaved or quote unquote bad because I come from a family um, where, you know, unlike I think a lot of my colleagues in law school and in the legal profession, you know, I, I don't come from lawyers. To be honest, I come from criminals and I'm very comfortable uh, when I'm surrounded by those who maybe society sees as as rejects. And so it started, I think, with this special ed job. And then when I went to law school, I really also as somebody who, who came from poverty, which of course is a byproduct of having a family like mine, um, I wanted to kind of end the cycle. And I'm very academic. I knew I could do school. I've always done school very well. And so law school was kind of the solution for me. And ultimately when I went in, I didn't know what kind of law I would practice. And I had an internship at the Georgia Innocence Project. So the Georgia Innocence Project that I'm still affiliated with today is an affiliate group um, of kind of the Innocence Project. So you have the Innocence Project in New York, but ours is a much tinier nonprofit here based in Atlanta. And what we do is we exonerate those in the state of Georgia um, solely based on DNA evidence. So they have to have DNA in their case. And obviously with the advancements in DNA, um, a lot of times when these individuals were convicted, we couldn't do what we can do now in terms of the analysis. So we have exonerated a number of people in recent years. Our organization continues to grow. Um, but like you mentioned, innocence is not necessarily my cause. I am a diehard defender, even if somebody is guilty. And I think being a public defender made a lot of sense, not even just from my experience with the Innocence Project, the Georgia Innocence Project, but with my experience um, growing up in the family I did with the parents that I did and even teaching in those impoverished public schools. You know, I wanted to advocate for the person that maybe made a horrible mistake, maybe committed a heinous crime, but circumstance does a lot to a person. I know because I lived through it. And so that's what connected me so much to public defense and only public defense. Molly, just uh, drill down on that a little bit. When you say circumstance um, is, is a driving factor, uh, what you mean by that and how you did not fall victim to it? Well, another thing, and I love that you, you phrase it like that. Um, you can't fall victim to it. I'm not somebody who's victim-centered. I think it's another reason why being a prosecutor doesn't appeal to me. But for me, um, I grew up in an incredibly strange, non-conventional, bizarre home. Um, my parents were part of this late 60s anti-war hippie movement um, and leaders. My dad was a bit of a leader. He illustrated Abby Hoffman's Steal This Book. So now everybody knows the Chicago 7 because Netflix made a movie about it. Um, he was not arrested for those conspiracy charges, but he attended every single day of the trial. He was an artist and he illustrated, he did like his own courtroom sketches. Um, and my parents um, very much believed in this ethos of the hippie lifestyle, all of it, the good and the bad. And then when myself and my siblings were born, they didn't abandon that. So we were growing up in the 80s and the 90s with parents that didn't necessarily believe in like having jobs or living a conventional life. 
they were bohemian. So um, poverty, I think, was the biggest issue for us. We had absolutely no money, but it was also almost by choice, right? My parents are very smart. They conceivably could have had jobs, but they didn't have the same values as much of America did, especially in the 80s and the 90s, you know, long after the 60s had passed. So philosophically, we were exposed to all of that. And certainly, I have so many memories growing up where my life was extremely limited. I didn't I couldn't go on field trips. I had, I had to get braces when I turned 18 and could afford them myself. I didn't have the right clothes or shoes or backpacks. I didn't want anyone to come visit my house growing up because it was, you know, I lived in, you know, squalor. And so, and it was weird. It was like weird hippie people. So as a kid, I was still confident. And I think we have a big problem with these days, especially conformity. I think people want to be like everyone else. And despite being very strange and, in some ways disadvantaged, I was confident and I remain a confident being. And so I kind of moved through life, I think, unapologetic for coming from where I came from, even though I looked different and didn't have a lot of friends or a lot of things as I went through, you know, my early childhood. Um, But for me, the other thing, the reason I didn't fall victim, I would say to my own circumstances was that I knew that in America, you know, I knew there was a path for someone like me and that would be through school. And I threw myself into academics. And I I think I was able to maintain that confidence because I was so good at school, right? I remember vividly my very first day of pre-K and how everything was clean and organized. And I thought, you know, I can do this. Like, I like having a cubby hole and I'm going to sit on the square and I'm going to answer all of the questions. And so school became a refuge for me. And that's ultimately, I guess, how I became a successful lawyer. If you're good at school, um, that helps in the pursuit of that kind of path. But how, how did you become a lawyer, though? I mean, where was the moment that it said, okay, this is something I want to do? Coming from where you were and the surroundings and circumstances that you had growing up, how does it go from there to lawyer? Yeah, I... I think, you know, I was teaching school and so I was kind of like the working poor because I was making a school teacher's salary for five years. Um, my, my mom was kind of, she didn't have a stable home. My dad actually ended up on the run from a bunch of charges here in Georgia. So he was like living as a fugitive in Vermont. So I had this chaotic life and I think I wanted stability. I wanted a, an advanced degree and I knew I could do it very well. So I think for me, the moment came honestly, <laughs> When I took the LSAT, I made pretty close to a perfect score. And so I knew I could get a full scholarship. So when I got a full scholarship, then I could go to school. But if I didn't have, I got a full scholarship and a stipend. And if I didn't, I would not be a lawyer. If I did not have a full scholarship, both as an undergrad student at Georgia Tech and at Emory Law, I wouldn't, who knows what I would be doing. But it was the moment I knew that I wouldn't have to pay, (laughs) that I could invest in those three years of becoming a lawyer. And the goal before I I applied was simply to have a better, more stable quality of life. Interesting. Now, look, when you become, when when you make that decision to go to law school, did you know that you wanted to be a criminal defense attorney? Was that the, does that, oh, oh no, it's not. Okay. So, so what was it? What, why did you go to law school? Was it just for financial reasons or did you progress in a way? Yeah, I I progressed once I got there. And it's funny because I look back 
And I think, well, of course, I'm born to be a criminal defense lawyer. This is My identity is tied so much to being a criminal defense lawyer. I can't imagine my life without this being a huge part of me. Um, but, you know, I, I think I didn't know enough about what being a lawyer was. I had no lawyers in my family. I knew that I could do law school. And honestly, because I have a bachelor's of science from Georgia Tech, I thought maybe I'd be a, like a corporate patent lawyer. But it was that I wanted more stability. And then once I got there and started to learn the very basics, the rudimentary, you know, the, the most basic things that you learn in the, that first year of law school, it was clear to me that um, I was not designed to be a corporate lawyer or a patent lawyer. I should be a criminal. I should be a public defender specifically. And then I had that internship at the Georgia Innocence Project. And that summer or that semester when I was there, really solidified the idea that these are my people, this is my cause, and it all became crystal clear. But no, I came in very open-minded to any and all of it. Uh, Molly, some really, really interesting uh, insights. Let me ask you, uh, we used the term victim to th th that term victimization. Um, what, what is your message to people? Uh, there is a school of thought that we maybe let people believe they're victims and after they're told that they can and you won't and it's not capable it never happened to you i know many people when i worked in in the inner city that felt that they could never succeed in america that everything was stacked against them you came from that environment what, what do you say to those people that have that mentality yeah, that's a great question. And I would say that everybody is in a different circumstance. And certainly there are some people that feel more tethered to the idea of being a victim than I would, because maybe they don't have certain things that I have. Um, but for me, what really propelled me, and, and when we talk about mindset, I think it's so important because it was my mindset that helped me continue to achieve things that maybe other people would, would think would be impossible for someone like me. It has to do with, I think, stop thinking about yourself, right? Like it's not, it's not about you. Like what has ever happened to you or the suffering that you have incurred, maybe it's something bigger than you. And if your cause, if your end goal, if your purpose is something greater than you, then you can get there better than thinking that it's solely your individual feelings that matter. And so that's why I, I think I took naturally a path of service, both as a public school teacher in the inner city and as a public defender. My goal wasn't about necessarily um, making my life better. I mean, on one level, I wanted more stability, and in part, that was for my family. But really what I wanted to do was serve others who were far worse off than I was. And with that as the motivation, something more external, that gets you there. I think when you wallow and mire yourself in your own experience, you're too self-absorbed. Honestly, when it comes to the world, it's not about you. It's a very big world. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that would be my message. Yeah, I just, I just want a quick follow-up before Dave goes. Um, with respect to the idea that you came from the circumstances that you did, as you described, you know, before, but what about your parents is in you right now that makes you great at what you do? Well, I think um, I would be naive not to admit that I was incredibly influenced by my parents for better or for worse. Um, so, you know, my parents were very anti-government, um, for lack of a better word. They would self-identify, my dad at least, as an anarchist. 
And he was also an intellectual. His father, um, you know, my parents chose their poverty. His father was a professor of philosophy. And so he comes from a well-educated family and he was very smart. But he hated laws and rules and being told what to do. And he didn't care about them. And he was wild. He was a lawless person. And to see that and to know somebody also is good and creative and contributing to society in so many ways that maybe the most people don't realize, it really can change your perspective, especially as a young person. And so I think, you know, even honestly, and you, I have a good relationship with a lot of my adversaries, with the prosecutors, with the federal um, United States attorneys who are prosecuting my clients, um, but they know that Truly, at the end of the day, my philosophy is this. I don't think the involvement of the government makes a bad situation any better. Bad things are going to happen. And I just don't believe, and this comes from my parents, that you throw a government actor in there and all of a sudden we have closure and peace and, you know, a better society. And that, that exclusively comes from a very bizarre perspective of a relic from the late 60s who was unapologetically anti-government. So, yeah. yes, that is a big part of my work. Yeah, Dave, I had a funny feeling that that was going to pretty much be the connective tissue there. So you got past the poverty issues, you got past, you know, but that that instinct that they provided to you about anti-government or fighting the government, if you will, uh, is is probably one of the, obviously is a motivating factor to the public defender's job and defense work that she does. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, you fit right in, right? I mean, you fit right into the defense work. And, and look, that's where we are, too. And and. I mean, I don't know about Bob. I could probably say I'm, I'm not going back to the prosecutor side either. Why are you going to point I'm at staying, me? I'm staying where I'm at, the Bianchi well, Law Group. Well, I'll say this. i got to defend prosecutors for one second here. I, I just have to because I think it depends on the mindset of the prosecutor. We could talk a little bit about lawyers and their mindset. Yeah. My mindset, you heard me say this a million times when I was the you know, head of the prosecutor's office. I was appointed by the governor. And my mantra to my staff always was that, look, and this is not a real number, but I used to say it. 95% of the people that come through the criminal justice system are mentally ill or they're addicted. And we can use the criminal justice system not to hit a fly with a sledgehammer, but to give them opportunities, to give them rehabilitation. And we work very... Now, 5% sometimes need to go away for as long as is humanly possible in my mind yeah. because they represent a continuing danger you know, to other people. But what the, the, the statistics are not accurate. The point I was trying to drive is that as prosecutors, our job is not just to warehouse people in jail, but rather to try to get them to become productive citizens. How much of that do you see, Ma? I mean, you see different... Look, I've worked with prosecutors and have been a defense lawyer against prosecutors who I think enjoy pulling the wings off flies. They, they, they actually like, you know, making it as painful as possible. What are your thoughts on all that? I think, I think you're actually very right. And I think if more prosecutors had that mentality and were coaching their attorneys that way, the system would look different. But the truth is, as you said, that there are some people who take that kind of job and have that kind of power um, for reasons that really are not aligned with justice, right? Mm -hmm. There are many justice-minded prosecutors. Like I said, I have great relationships with a lot of them. Um, but, the, you know, it's, it's, that's the case with any profession. That's the case with any individual. I mean, you're going to have some outliers who are motivated by very bad things. And certainly that happens in a prosecutor's office. But I think the other issue is that um, it's not just the prosecutor. I mean, they have so, many, so much power in terms of charging decisions and all of that. But 
it's a court, it's a judge, it's making it to the court date when you don't have any resources, when you don't have transportation, when you're dealing with so many other things in your life. Once you get caught up, it's a probation revocation. You know, once you get caught up, I think it's very hard to disentangle yourself as a marginalized person. But you are right that prosecutors have tremendous power to do a lot of good if they are truly justice minded. I agree with you wholeheartedly on that. No, absolutely. And I do too. I was an assistant prosecutor at the Morris County Prosecutor's Office under Bob Bianchi. And I was very fortunate to be under Bob with that mindset. I mean, under that was, as, as far as authority is concerned. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, right? I mean, assistant <laughs> prosecutor, the, the boss. I mean, my law partner, Bob Bianchi, was my boss. Top law enforcement officer of the county. And it was a trickle-down effect for that mindset. Because Bob came to the top spot, top cop in the jurisdiction as a former defense attorney. Mm -hmm. He was a Hudson County assistant prosecutor, then a defense attorney that also handled civil rights cases with his father, 1983 actions. And then that experience is exactly what top cop prosecutors need. So I was extremely fortunate to have Bob as the county prosecutor when I was there. And you do have an opportunity to help people. No doubt, because you have discretion as to what the appropriate dispositions and sentences and plea offers are, right? So you have it. But guess what? Being on the side that we're on, the three of us now, I mean, we get to help people more than ever before Mm. because people come to us at their lowest, right? There's no bigger, scary situation than potentially losing your liberty or your job or your kids or your license. And that's what we deal with now as defense attorneys. And that's what I love most about the justice system. It's what I love most about being a criminal defense attorney. And what I love most about scaling the Bianchi Law Group, adding our sixth attorney July 1, seventh attorney July 15, let's go. Molly, thoughts on that? I love that. And, and you're right. I mean, I think there's more creativity on the defense side uh, by virtue of the fact that we have to be creative because the odds are stacked against us. But what you're talking about in terms of what we do in, in when it comes to mitigation, I mean, that is so tremendous. And that's what I love. I love to get to know my clients' families and, and their history and to learn what put them in this position and to be the voice that shares that in the court and to build a firm that knows prosecution inside and out like you guys do, but also is motivated by, like you said, helping people in their lowest point. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what the system is supposed to do in an idealized form. And maybe as we continue to move forward, we can someday get there. Um, I don't think the system is in, in any respect um, perfectly functioning, but I am very motivated by the fact that those of us who care and do this work and do it well are the ones who can possibly, if anyone can do it, can change that. Yeah, I, I, I it, she speaks our language. You know, one of the things that's great about being a defense lawyer, there's more intimacy with the client, if you will. There's more contact with a real human being. And you mentioned a word that we're very big with, and and we do mitigation packages for every one of our clients to humanize our client, to let them know who they are, what they've done in their lives. There that the prosecutor is just not doing criminal claims adjusting and just shaking files around from one pile to another pile. So you know. 
and what frustrates me, well, before I get to what frustrates me, but Dave and myself also got trained by Dr. Brene Brown down in San Antonio. We went for a week to get trained on her program on resiliency, and we make sure we talk to our clients about it and give them materials as they're going through this difficult you know, aspect of their life. I love that more than I think maybe the legal work itself because I know I'm making a difference in a human being irrespective of what the judicial system is going to do down the road. But I'll tell you, Molly, what gets me really agitated, and I made sure my problem prosecutors didn't do this but when they'll back out now on the defense side i think when you talk about criminal justice yeah you have some bad actors and so on and so forth but nothing is worse to me than laziness not knowing their file or not caring it's just a job you know what i'm saying i totally agree it's never just a job and and you're right i mean you can't process people and unfortunately that's what happens many times but i will say from the perspective of somebody that needed to be resilient, all it takes is one person to really listen to you. And the fact that you do those mitigation upworks, I mean, I do them too with my clients. That was a big part of being a federal defender. We were trained to do them. It's not just that the court is going to hear that. It's not just that you can persuade a prosecutor during negotiation. It's that in that moment, you're listening to your client and you have power and you might be one of the first people with power to have ever listened to them. And mm. that has that has the effect of making that person resilient. So it's an incredible reverberation when you do things like that. So I love to hear it and know the only thing that's, there's nothing more in, infuriating than laziness. When we are putting our heart and soul into this work and our counterpart couldn't care less. I mean, yeah. it's a tragedy. I, I, and we do you, you're right. And, and, and I think a lot of it, I've, I'm always asked this question about, what do you think is the number one criminal, or five things for criminal justice reform, blah, blah, blah. I get asked this every time by every governor, new governor comes in here. And I'm like, I'm not going to give you five. I'm not giving you four. I'm not giving you three. I'm not even going to give you two. I'm going to give you one. Hire people that are judges and prosecutors that have extraordinary experience in all facets of the criminal justice system because the ship, the, the fish rots from the head down. If you have an experienced, balanced prosecutor that's had both defense lawyer experience, whatever, and the right temperament, you can get to some closer approximation of justice in my mind. Molly, I, I, sorry, Dave, got to take the last no. word on that. No, I know. Um, we're, we're, unfortunately, we've run out of time. We, we have. Molly, you got to come back. We, 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 we have the same mindset, and you, you were great. Uh, this is WMTR Radio. It's nothing but the truth with Bob Bianchi, Dave Bruno, every Saturday, 1030. And then Dave will tell us about when the podcast, I'll use the fancy word that these young people use now, drops. Yeah. Nothing but the truth. Podcast.com is the landing page with all the videos. We're also in Spotify and iTunes for the podcast. So Molly's, we're on the radio now on Saturday, but Wednesday drops with the podcast and the video. It's a must watch, must see. Uh, Molly, thank you for the, your time. And I look forward to appearing with you, debating with you. And uh, if you ever need anything up in Jersey, you know, we have your back. Thank you. I had such a great time. Thanks. Many thanks to Molly Palmer. You're an inspiration and a true advocate in the service of those in need and much help. As a lawyer and a humanitarian, like your work in the Georgia Innocence Project. Molly really inspired me with her advice of not wallowing in self-pity and not making it about oneself, but extending oneself to others to get to the next level. When she said, quote, I think when you wallow and mire yourself in your own experience, you're too self-absorbed. Honestly, 
when it comes to the world, it's not about you. It's a very big world. It's not about you or the suffering you've incurred. Maybe it's something bigger than you, end quote. You've been listening to Nothing But The Truth Podcast with me, David Bruno, and my law partner and host, Bob Bianchi. We're two former prosecutors and media personalities. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review and share this podcast to anyone that would benefit from these stories of rising from adversity and thriving for ultimate success. For more information on this interview with Molly Palmer, see the show notes in this episode in your podcast app or visit nothingbutthetruthpodcast.com for more information and new episodes all in one place.